This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Queen for your Friday afternoon and under pressure that the shares of deer were under pressure earlier after the numbers came out. But the conference call seems to have made people feel a little bit better. Let's figure out what's going on. For that, we bring in Ann Dignan. She's managing director and U.S. machinery analyst at J.P. Morgan Chase, joining us on the phone from New York City. Hi, Ann. So what do we make of these numbers and the gyrations, as it were, that the stock has gone through today? Yeah, I think John Deere must be the poster child for why we need quarterly earnings and quarterly estimates, quite frankly. Uh, you know, the stock was down uh, close to 7% uh, before the open on what looked like uh, very disappointing incremental profits. That's, you know, revenues were up about 36%, but uh, equipment profits were only up about the same amount. And so that's not what investors want to see. They want to see more of the revenue increase fall to the bottom line. Uh, however, the CFO was able to clarify what had happened in the quarter with higher freight costs, higher raw material costs. The company is pushing through price increases as we speak, and it expects that uh, by the time they get to their fiscal 19, which would start in November, uh, they ought to be able to offset the higher input costs with pricing. And so maybe uh, that appeased investors a little bit. Uh, as well as some comments he made about the potential for, um, you know, post-tariff, post-trade issues, that uh, there is some replacement demand potentially out there for U.S. agriculture. Yeah, and I want to ask you a little bit more about their ability to price, uh, push through some of the costs that that they're seeing because we're taking a look at gross margins and gross margins do continue to climb because they are facing pressure just from raw materials and freight costs, as you mentioned. Are, do you see in your models that they can turn that around by 2019? Uh, I think it's a great question, and I think it's going to be uh, a tale of two cities. In their agricultural equipment side, uh, frankly, they really have very little competition, and a lot of their equipment, particularly in the high-horsepower, high-margin segment, uh, that equipment tends to get leased. And so when you're leasing, you have more pricing power, so that's probably will help them a little bit on the agricultural side. On construction equipment, they actually saw sales incentives rise this past quarter as, uh, you know, they had to pay their sales guys more to deliver the sales they needed. So I think um, on the construction side, we're definitely seeing increased competition, particularly from overseas competitors, uh, particularly from Asian competitors. So uh, I think it will be a tale of two cities. And I think it's uh, you know, we're, we remain a little bit more cautious on their ability to deliver stronger margins next year versus this year. And what about Caterpillar here? And, you know, their shares are up uh, about 2.7% today. What are people reading into these numbers? What are cat investors reading into these numbers potentially? Uh, I think there isn't really a direct uh, read through from cat 
from deer to caterpillar, quite honestly, because caterpillar does not participate in the agricultural sector. But I will say I think the notion that there is pricing power out there if you are in a strong competitive position, which caterpillar is on the mining side and where we have seen very strong pricing power, uh, and additionally, I think the notion for Caterpillar, from our perspective, is better because you're very early in a recovery in the mining equipment sector, uh, and you really have decent visibility in mining. It's generally a 10-year cycle. We we look at commodity prices. We look at global GDP. It's easier to forecast mining equipment. So, you know, if we had to pick one or the other, we remain overweight Caterpillar. We remain neutral on deer, just given all of the headwinds that the industry is facing um, on the back of these tariffs and trade discussions, whether it's NAFTA and or China. I want, want to get to the tariffs, though. Uh, just quickly, though, can you talk about what he said on the call, the CFO, when they said R&D spending would be up 21 percent? That seems like a big number to me. Are you encouraged by the fact that they're increasing their R&D, especially as it relates to large ag and some of their precision technology? Yeah, they are investing very heavily in precision technology. That's, you know, variable rate applications of things like herbicides, which do help farmers reduce costs. Uh, and that's a positive. Uh, but, you know, the, the incremental investment, I think where investors will become concerned is if you're investing at these very high levels and anything happens to the cycle, if the cycle rolls over and you're still investing at these very elevated levels, then again, uh, margins can be impacted in a downturn. So, you know, we have to balance both of those. It also could lead to lower uh, earnings this cycle versus prior cycle, lower peak earnings, lower normalized earnings. So, you know, it does bear watching because some of these investments in technologies, uh, deer is finding it harder to get paid for them. They have to give them away to farmers in order to entice the farmers to actually utilize the technology. So, you know, I think um, it's uh, kind of uh, let's see what the returns are like on these investments over a cycle. But right. it is at least encouraging that they are the leader in terms of investing in their own technologies. And Dynan, Managing Director and U.S. Machinery Analyst at J.P. Morgan Chase, joining us here on the phone in New York City. Thanks so much. Have a nice weekend. So, Taylor, yeah, interesting, interesting notes there. because we were just on the call as that was wrapping up this morning. They did say that trade anxiety is getting overblown a little bit, that some of the noise is overshadowing the growth that they're seeing in grain. Absolutely. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. later and this is a really cool story something I'm actually very excited to talk about because so often as you know we are all obsessed here about quarterly earnings every three months we get very excited and we're now looking at a story that Trump is asking or looking to make have the SEC look at what it would mean to do six-month reporting instead of quarterly earnings reports. Joining us now to break this all down is Annie Mesa, uh, our Bloomberg News reporter who's covered this. Annie, I just want to ask you first off, this is a big deal, right? Going from quarterly to six-month, if it were to happen, really changes the way companies would have to report. It would definitely change the landscape. Right now, one thing that you've heard exchanges and companies complain about is that there's just a churn that goes on every quarter. You've got to be exposing your financial statements, getting everything together, and you have this 
crush of, you know, investor interest, analyst interest in that and activity around it. And so it really would slow it down to go from a situation where you report four times a year to just twice a year. And Annie, we should add that this uh, idea was, at least in the president's uh, words, put forth to him uh, by outgoing PepsiCo CEO Indra Nui. She has come out with a statement later today, later on, uh, or after he spoke, she came out and said her comments came over dinner last week, I guess, uh, with the president at Bedminster. And she was talking about how she said they were made in broad context and how to better orient corporations to have a more long term view. And one of the things she mentioned was that in Europe, this is much more commonplace that companies come out every six months. So what how do you think Wall Street would have to change? And we've talked a little bit about companies, but how would sort of all the Wall Street mechanisms potentially shift if this were to go into place? So the people who are for an idea like this say basically Wall Street would shift in a way such that CEOs would be freed up to look at the bigger picture of their businesses. And it's particularly timely after Elon Musk tweeted about taking his company private because he feels the pressure um, of all the spotlight on you uh, as a public company. So that is on people's minds recently. It could give CEOs a little bit more freedom um, that way. On on the downside, though, uh, it would change Wall Street in a way where investors just don't have as much access to information as they do now as regularly. So one red flag that has been raised is this could potentially, I mean, open up uh, a little bit more insider trading, for example. People might feel more tempted to act on um, information that they received uh, that, that that the market wasn't privy to yet. And sort of against uh, an effort against short-termism is something that has been on a lot of CEOs' minds. We had an interview uh, late last year with none other than Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Here's what he had to say about quarterly earnings. Like, I don't even care about quarterly earnings. As I can say just outright, I don't care about quarterly earnings. I've never done anything for quarterly earnings. Matter of fact, our quarterly earnings are based upon decisions that have been made over the last five or ten years, and by my predecessors. You know, when you build systems and people and relationships with technology and you enter country after country, you're not doing that for short-term things. So that's pretty clear what Jamie yeah. Dimon thinks. Well, and I wanted to ask you as well, along with Jamie Dimon, what other CEOs have talked about this? Because it was interesting. We heard this isn't directly related, but GM stopped releasing monthly auto sales. They wanted to go quarterly because the CEO said, we feel so much pressure to meet these numbers on a monthly basis. It's overwhelming and it's a distraction. That's right. Well, one major example is Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, has spoken extensively about long-term thinking and how the market should be moving in a direction. He hasn't commented specifically on Trump's tweet, but he has said in the past the market needs to be moving in a direction of of looking more towards long-term thinking and not just quarter-to-quarter thinking. Annie Massa, Bloomberg News, investing reporter uh, all over this story, as our readers and clients have been one of the most read stories, not surprisingly, Taylor, because a lot of people feel like you do. This is a, this is a really interesting idea. Well, and in the days of uh, high-frequency trading and flash crashes, it's interesting that this feels like a recent development when we're all 
all trying to take a step back when everything else in the world seems to be speeding up so much. Everything is so immediate. I mean, we were joking yesterday about how there was a story yesterday, I believe it was about NYU's free medical tuition, and you turned to me during the break and you said, oh, well, you know, this came out this morning. Everybody knows about it already. I mean, that is the attitude that we have right now in this social media landscape and, of course, at the speed of Bloomberg as well. So yeah. it all comes together. away indeed the semiconductor sector getting hit pretty hard today and the best measure of that is the Sox, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. So to help us understand this, we've got our two leading lights in this area. Ian King, our U.S. semiconductor and networking reporter, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. And here right next to Taylor Riggs and myself, Shira Oviday, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. So, Ian, let's start with you. NVIDIA seems to be driving this at least today, but Chip stocks have been getting hit for a few days now. Yeah, I mean, we've got a, a, a sort of the usual. You remember when you used to work for a living and cover the chip industry, Jason, um, <laughs> things used to be up and down. Uh, you know, this is a very cyclical market. For the last couple of years, the chip industry has been really on a, on a roll. We've seen some incredible growth. Now people are saying, well, perhaps we've seen the end of that. Perhaps we're, we're coming back to this, you know, this big cyclical downturn that, that really has been overdue for a long time. Kashira, I feel like in, in chip world, people have said essentially that whole thing about how we used to be a cyclical business, that's sort of over. This time it's different, which is the most dangerous phrase, uh, certainly on Wall Street, right? So what, what's new here? Yeah, well, maybe this time it isn't different, as you as you noted. And and there's some other challenges for the chip industry too. That one of them is global economic growth. There are more questions about um, economic growth outside the United States, especially. And chip makers are a little bit of a canary in the coal mine for uh, the global economy and, and economic slowdown there. Um, the other one is China and the U.S. tariff war. That that is affecting U.S. chip makers. Um, at least on the margins, and they've been complaining about that. That's a, that's a very um, globally integrated supply chain. And the other one is that a lot of the gains in the semiconductor index the last couple of years have been tied to mergers and acquisitions, consolidation in that chip market, or hopes of consolidation. And there's a belief that a lot of that consolidation is done um, and that future deals get harder for various reasons, including kind of antitrust scrutiny. Ian, I wanted to ask you a little bit about NVIDIA a little bit more here when they talk about that the crypto gold rush is now going bust and that they are basically projecting no more revenue coming from crypto mining going forward. How fast did that sort of hit us all in the face? Um, Very fast is the answer to that. In the first quarter, they had uh, revenue from that segment of, I think, north of $280 million. Annualize that and you've got a billion-dollar business. Um, They're saying that in this quarter, it's going to be nothing. And so, Ian, just following on that for a second, what about the other big chip makers? What role do they play? Obviously, there's been, and I believe the last time you were on the show, we were at least alluding to some of the drama at Intel and TI and, and other places. What, what's happening with the big boys here? Qualcomm, obviously, 
another name that that people know well. How do they play into this little mini route we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's two things here. First of all, NVIDIA is one of the big boys now. They're a $150 billion company. Which See, just, it has been a long time since I worked yeah, for a living, as you pointed out. Which, I mean, which, which goes to Shira's point about the amount of money that's come into the sector, about, you know, about how, you know, unusually hot things have been. But, you know, to, to give them their say in all of this, what the chip industry executives are saying is, hold on a minute, we've been growing like weeds. Of course, the comparisons are now getting harder. That's just natural. The, what is different this time is what they're saying, which is AI, automotive, the cloud, Internet of Things, we're not just dependent upon one market like the PC industry, like the smartphone industry. There are so many more different demand drivers here. Yes, of course, we'll see ups and downs and, and you know nothing ever goes up and to the right forever. But fu- the fundamentals of what's going on and, and what both Applied Materials and NVIDIA yesterday were saying is like, look, look at our other businesses. Look how good they are. Um, for example, NVIDIA's demand from gamers, 52% up from a year ago. Data center business, 83% up from a year ago. So, uh, you know, there's a balance to be had here. I mean, I think a, a lot of this is amplified by how well the stocks have been doing, by how much money has flowed into them. Obviously, it's, at some point, people are going to want to take some money off the table. And, and really, it's a case of, well, do you believe that these new markets are going to add up to as much as the chip industry believes that they will? Sure, and I wanted to ask you a little bit how global tensions play in here, if at all. Uh, Ian talks about Qualcomm. When we think about Qualcomm, even just a few weeks ago, we were talking about that in relation to tariffs, rising tensions with China. How much of that sort of is playing into more of the macro picture? It's definitely, if nothing, it's not maybe not financially significant yet, but it does weigh on sentiment for the sector. Again, particularly for the U.S. tech companies, the chip companies, uh, the tariffs are starting to sting them on the margins. the The supply chain for the chip industry is is sprawling around the globe, including in China, and so you're in this weird situation where U.S. chip makers are being hit by tariffs intended. Uh, to target Chinese companies, and, and that's been kind of a strange element of this whole chip sector yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, well, we should we should point out here just to, to echo what um, she was saying that China has become the world's largest market for semiconductors. I mean, that you just can't get away from that. It's the largest market for PCs. It's the largest market for smartphones. So much of this industry goes through that country. Anything that threatens that complex supply chain is is, is really of a you know a huge overhang for everybody here. And Ian, what are the other names that we should be thinking about here? We've mentioned a few, and obviously a lot of uh, headlines over the last couple of days have been on NVIDIA and AMAT, but who else bears watching here? Yeah, I mean, we can't ignore what happened to Intel in this earnings uh, cycle. They, they had a wonderful report. Everything was a record. Everything was lovely, and the stock got hammered. It got hammered because people are concerned about what's going to happen in the future. They don't have a CEO and what's driven them forward all of this time, this ability to, to advance manufacturing so much faster than anybody else, looks like it's stumbling. That's a concern for the whole industry, but Intel in particular. Um, so we really need them, A, to get a CEO in place with a strategy that, that has investors believing in their future again. Ian King, my old friend, U.S. semiconductor and networking reporter, can always count on you to give me a hard time. I very much appreciate that. And Shira Ovide, our technology columnist here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio with Taylor Riggs and myself. A lot more Bloomberg Radio ahead on this sunny Manhattan Friday afternoon as we head into the weekend. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. 
And that is your drive to the close. We're about 10 minutes away from the closing bell. I'm Taylor Riggs here with Jason Kelly. And fortunately, we are being joined by Kirk Hartman. He's the Global Chief Investment Officer over at Wells Fargo Asset Management to break down sort of all the market reaction today, this week, and sort of the trends that we have been seeing over the last few months as we wrap up earnings season uh, and all of that. And Kirk, you know, it's great. One of the key points that I'm uh, reading in your research note is your conviction call and that how things are becoming a little bit more correlated and we're not as diversified as we think. And we see this particularly in the technology stocks that relates like Apple and Amazon leading the way. And if you take those out, sometimes we're not looking as as good because they just make up so much of the returns. How do you diversify more well, I think what you want to do is look at more uh, factor-based strategies, which don't uh, tilt towards the big market weights of the traditional indices. So what you're doing is you're staying committed to the market, but you're much more diversified. Um, the other point I would make is, and I think one of the reasons that small cap has done so well, you know, small caps by their nature are not big. So if you look at a small cap index, it is more diversified. And I think that's a good place to be because I think things like the FANG stocks have had a great run. Um, the big growth stocks have had a great run, and you just have to wonder when they're going to mean revert. So what's your contrarian call here, Kirk? I mean, this is a market that seems to agree on a lot of things. Tell us, tell us, go against the grain for us. Well, I think that we're rolling defensive, meaning that I think if you look at, you know, recently like the healthcare stocks, even things like the utilities, um, the 10-year treasuries come down from, uh, you know, over 3% to like 286 today. So it looks to me that the market is getting a little more defensive. Um, what's interesting is there are two 10-year periods where growth has outperformed value by such a large extent. One was the 10 years before the Great Depression, and obviously that's a totally different scenario. The one that gives me a little pause is the 10 years before the tech bubble in 2008. So in other words, uh-huh. I think if you're a contrarian, you've got to think, okay, some of the value plays which have really trailed the growthy megatech fang stocks are probably going to come more into vogue. And so what? give us some examples there. Well, I think you want to look, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, some of the uh, healthcare stocks. You know, you look at the things like the uh, the Pfizer's, the Merck. Yeah. We obviously own these companies, the Lilies. I mean, if you're really conservative, uh, you know, you go to a J&J, uh, Johnson Johnson, something like that. Um, I think those are the contrarian plays. And I think you shorten up in terms of fixed income. You, you know, you go to more floating rate product. But, um, look, we're testing the highs again, and I think the question is how much more are we going to go up? I want to switch over to bonds a little bit because I love also in your note that uh, you're looking at moving up in credit quality a little bit, looking to buy more of the investment grade securities and then underweighting or selling some of the high yield. And it's interesting because when we look at just the Bloomberg Barclays ag indices, it really has been high yield that has been massively outperforming year to date. So what made you change your mind now to get a little bit more defensive and move up in quality? 
Well, I think the, the trade at the beginning of the year that everybody thought was to underweight high yield and to overweight investment corporates. And what's happened is exactly the opposite, meaning, to your point, high yield has had a tremendous year. And investment-grade corporates have actually sold off a bit. So what's interesting on the institutional side, a lot of interest uh, in investment-grade corporates. And I think what you want to do is go up in quality because I've said this for a while. I'm more concerned about the bond market than I am the equity market. This bond market is, to me, nirvana. I mean, you just have incredible amounts of money in the system, incredibly low loan defaults, loans being done covenant light. And um, I don't think the bond market can ever get much better than it is now. So briefly, Kirk, let's talk a little bit about the two T's, trades or tariffs, I should say, tariffs and taxes. Sure. How far are we in terms of the benefit that we may get, especially here in the U.S., uh, the big corporates, from the tax cuts? And how worried are you about tariffs? Well, the, the, in terms of the tax cuts, I think there's a lot more money to be uh, repatriated. Uh, there was an interesting article, uh, uh, you know, in Bloomberg today about um, one and a half trillion dollars coming back, and about a third of that has probably already been spent on share buybacks. So I think that that is a good argument for some of the big, uh, you know, uh, uh, tech companies because and the big S and P companies you have more share buybacks. Um, in terms of uh, tariffs. Um, I hope that the tariffs have come to an end. I look at, or the tariff wars, I look at this more like a technology battle because what's really at stake here, I think, is our technology and our patents and our value added as a country. So uh, I think that's kind of gotten wrapped up in trade tensions. And the hope is that with the uh, China US summit on trade, that some of this, some of the rhetoric will calm down. Very good. Kirk Hartman, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Great stuff. Taylor, always interesting to get that perspective, especially for someone who looks so broadly, but also, you know, got some, got specific there with us. I yeah, like and some multi-asset, different, different asset classes and getting defensive both in equities and in bonds a little bit. He also very nicely uh, teed up something we are going to talk about in the next hour, which is that $1.5 trillion that may come back. Repatriated, I should say, from overseas. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.